Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 7. Last week, I covered the flooding Jordan River, the cities of Adam and Zarathon, and provided a refresher on the place known as Gilgal. Since these were relatively short topics, I was also able to cover flint knives and shofars, the ram's horn trumpets the priest blew just before the walls of the city of Jericho came tumbling down. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Joshua chapter 6 and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. When I left off in the last episode, the Israelites were just about to begin their first march around the city of Jericho. I covered that city in depth in Chapter 5, Episode 22, released in February of this year. So, I'll only cover a small section in this episode, specifically the battle, the walls, and how far it was around the city. That's actually in the wrong order. First, the walls, which will lead directly into how far it was around the city. As a reminder, from the comprehensive episode on Jericho, as of today, it's believed to be the oldest walled city in the world, with the original wall dating to around 8000 BC. There was an unwalled city there before the wall, perhaps there without a wall for about 500 years, which makes sense as things tend to occur in a natural order, cities, then walls. This city may have been about six acres, two and a half hectares, in size. This would be about the same time that the agricultural revolution hit the area, which also, at least from a timing perspective, makes sense. This pre-wall city had mud-brick houses, but appeared to be laid out rather haphazardly, so likely no central city planning. The first wall may have been for defensive purposes, meaning to keep an armed enemy out. This wall even included a stone tower, about 28 feet, nearly 9 meters tall, a tower that was likely for lookouts. The wall may have also been constructed to prevent floodwaters from entering, a water-diverting wall. But if this was the case, it wouldn't have needed a tower for lookouts but this tower instead may have been for ceremonial purposes. More on the potential ceremonial purposes in a minute. The wall was built from rough, unhewn stones. It was rather stout, between about five to seven feet thick at the base, a meter and a half to two meters. It was also tall, between about 12 and 17 feet, nearly four to just over five meters. But this fortification wasn't just a wall. It also included a ditch, about 27 feet, over 8 meters wide, and 9 feet, nearly 3 meters deep, which doesn't sound terribly impressive until you take into account that much of it was cut into bedrock. So, we now know how tall and wide the wall was, along with the dimensions of the ditch. What we don't know is the circumference, the short story is that it was about 2,000 feet, 600 meters around the city. Think of your high school track and add 50%. This is three-eighths of a mile, or six-tenths of a kilometer. 
Do note that this size was well before the Israelites showed up. Not very large by our standards, until you think about how you would construct it using only Stone Age tools, meaning large, heavy flint picks, and probably stone mauls. But stone tools used to split hard rock stone is both labor-intensive and not very effective. They may have also used shock cooling through fire and water to split the rock. At this time, it's estimated that the settlement, both in and around the city, was a generally well-organized population with between two and 3,000 people. This would be a rather sizable number for that era, and the assumption that they were organized is relatively straightforward, as a disorganized or even a small population would have had a hard time constructing a wall and a ditch of this size. An organization usually leads to social classes, and certainly a leader. As for the tower and its potential ceremonial purposes, a pair of modern archaeologists used computer modeling to reconstruct sunsets and discovered that when the Tower of Jericho was built, nearby mountains cast a shadow on it as the sun set on the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. The shadow fell exactly on the structure and then spread out to cover the entire village of Jericho. Similar astronomical curiosities have been uncovered at the Egyptian pyramids in Stonehenge, along with numerous other sites across the globe. Another wall, potentially dating to between 1950 and 1550 BC, has also been uncovered. This would place this wall to being destroyed about 150 years before the Israelites entered Canaan, commonly believed to have occurred around 1400 BC. All of these were early finds on a tell in Jericho. Then, in the 1950s, so after World War II and the settlement of Israel, to the west of Jericho, further archaeological digs were conducted. One of these found the remains of what were thought to be some 17 different walls. It appears that many of these were part of a large cycle of construction, then destruction by earthquake, or war, then reconstruction, though one appears to have been hastily rebuilt, suggesting an impending threat. This is interpreted by many as being rebuilt after being destroyed by nomadic invaders, potentially the Israelites. After this wall was destroyed, it appears the city was left generally unoccupied, with potentially only a few residents living in and around the ruins of the formerly large city at least large for the time. And this generally aligns with the biblical account, where the city was burned down, and then anyone attempting to rebuild it would have been cursed. All of the walls up through this period were a mixture of stone and unbaked mud bricks. The earliest bricks were typically handmade in a varying size and shape. After this wall, a better constructed and more elaborate wall was built. Sometime in the Middle Bronze Age, this wall had steep, plastered sides and mud bricks on top. I'm guessing that these bricks were embedded with straw. In this case, the bricks were more uniform than the earlier ones, appearing to have been made in molds. For comparison purposes, 
these bricks tended to be larger than what we use in modern houses. The ones in Bronze Age Jericho, so about when the Israelites showed up, were 10 by 14 inches, length and width, and about 2 inches thick. That's 25 by 35 centimeters, and 5 centimeters thick. Large, flat rectangles. And one more note about this wall and the Israelites. This part of the narrative, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan and began picking off the cities, the story about the defeat of Jericho contains more detail and more words than nearly the entire rest of the battles. I'll get to the rest of what's known about the Battle of Jericho in just a minute. I couldn't find out how long this wall stood, but did read where about the 7th century BC, so in the Middle Iron Age, another wall was built. This wall was dated, at least partially, because of Iron Age tools and their markings were found in it. Circling back to the Battle of Jericho, of course, the narrative is found in Joshua 6. Except the spies scoping it out and benefiting from the assistance of Rahab. Essentially, the Israelites circled the city once a day for six days. On these days, the people were quiet, but the shofars did blow. Then on the seventh day, they circled it seven times, then blew their trumpets and shouted in unison, and when they did, the wall fell, and they invaded, killing everyone except for Rahab and her family. They even slaughtered the livestock. They then burned the city, gathering the precious metal booty for the tabernacle. A few minutes ago, I covered how there had been multiple walls built, then destroyed at the site. But there has never been any conclusive link between any of these destruction events and the invading Israelites. This isn't terribly surprising. It was, after all, over 3,000 years ago, and the text records that everything was destroyed. But there are researchers who doubt that the Jericho narrative found in Joshua is true. They cite the lack of archaeological evidence and instead propose that the story was a result of nationalistic propaganda put forth by the later kings of Judah who completely invented the story. There are other researchers who propose that an earlier Egyptian campaign, dating to about 1500 BC, led to the destruction of the city, and that when the Israelites arrived, they would have found it largely abandoned. Artifacts found at one of the destroyed walls do date to between the 17th and 16th centuries BC, which may have been part of an Egyptian conquest. After this destruction, the city is thought to have remained without a wall, and rather small, for the next 500 or so years. All of this is from a place known modernly as Tel Sultan, thought to be the same place as the biblical Jericho. Though there is room for doubt. And, then again, the number of walls built, then destroyed, does come to around 20. I'll let you decide for yourself. And that's the Jericho Refresher, and Joshua chapter 6. Moving along. Chapter 7 begins with the first, ill-fated attack on the city of Ai, found in Joshua chapters 7 and 8. And before anyone writes in pointing out that I said the narrative on Jericho was the longest of 
all of the Canaanite conquest, the narrative about Ai is interspliced with the sin of a specific Israelite, which makes up most of these two chapters. Think of the battles of Ai being more in the background, with the sin narrative in the foreground. But for this episode, I'm moving Ai to the front. As a reminder, in Joshua, the Israelites attempted to capture Ai on two occasions. The first, in Joshua 7, fails. In this battle, it seems that the loss was due to the Israelites not taking enough men to the fight. Their spies had reported that the town was lightly defended and would be beatable by two to 3,000 warriors. Joshua sends 3,000, and they are driven off, but not before the deaths of 36 of their own. Joshua is upset by this. Then God tells him why it happened, due to the sin of Achan, where he kept some of the spoils from Jericho, instead of placing them in the tabernacle. The rest of chapter 7 details how Joshua uncovered the specific perpetrator and what happened to him and his family. I covered this in more depth in the summary episodes in the beginning of chapter 7 of the podcast. After Achan is dealt with, and in Joshua 8, Ai is attacked again. The actual battle is laid out in detail and takes up most of that chapter. I covered the plan and how it unfolded in the summary episodes as well. When it was over, 12,000 residents of Ai had died, and their king was hanged on a tree until sunset. After the sun went down, his body was thrown at the gate to the city and covered with a pile of stones, a pile that stands there to this day. The city was burned until it was just a heap of ruins. Not to be forgotten, loot was captured, which God permitted the Israelites to keep, including the livestock. This Canaanite city is thought to be the same as the ruins found at the archaeological site named Etel. Of course, the Tel in the name meaning it's found on a small hill. In this case, a watershed plateau overlooking the Jordan Valley, as were most of the cities in the region. Several archaeological researchers, going as far back as the 19th century Edward Robinson, have proposed that Etel is A.E. This list also includes William F. Albright. Some of this is based on the names. Etel and the Hebrew word A.E. translate generally the same with the word in Hebrew roughly meaning a ruin, corresponding with the biblical account where, in chapter 8, we're told that Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. The archaeological digs at the site have uncovered the usual artifacts that span the years of occupation. Finds such as late Bronze Age pottery fragments, dating to about 1400 B.C., In this period, a large unfortified village about 700 feet, 200 meters in diameter, was established. By our standards, this would seem small, but it was large for that time and place. Near the village, on the slopes of the bordering hills, tombs were dug into the caves. The pottery from the period shows both local and foreign influences, and the foreign part seems to indicate either trade or migration. 
As time passed, the foreign influence on the pottery grew. Similar to Jericho, Etel, A.E., was fortified as early as 3100 B.C., which was during the early Bronze Age. This was a large, well-planned city, about 27 acres, which is over 110,000 square meters. At some point in this period, a temple was built, along with a palace. There was a market, and naturally a residential neighborhood. The walls had four substantial gates. This iteration of the city didn't last long, though, as sometime between 2950 and 2860 BC, it was violently destroyed, suggesting an invasion from an outside force. What's been uncovered are the remains of burnt buildings, a layer of scorched stones, and all sorts of ash on the floors of what remained. Obviously, not destruction via natural means, like an earthquake. This, too, isn't surprising, as economically successful cities, as the ruin suggests it was, tend to attract enemies wanting a piece of the pie. After this destruction, the city was rebuilt again, and again became an urban center. This was still within the early to mid-Bronze Age for the region. The archaeological record, at least as interpreted by some, shows that in this rebuilding period, buildings were reconstructed to a better condition than before the destruction, and the walls were made even stronger. New pottery shapes appeared. Some interpret this as either the influence of outsiders, potentially the invaders, or new leadership, or both. But this city, too, wasn't to last long, as it was destroyed by fire around 2720 B.C., and this wasn't a normal urban fire. Think a spreading house fire. Whatever happened was particularly hot. Excavations have uncovered the ruins of buildings, collapsed stones, and beams at every location from the time period. Fire trapped under the debris of collapsed roofs smoldered hot enough to change the chemical composition of the stone, a process known as calcination. But there was other destruction, too. One place this has been observed is in the city's Acropolis, specifically within its walls. These walls were tilted and displaced by a rift in the bedrock, suggesting that an earthquake may have been responsible for the destruction. So, possibly an earthquake that led to especially hot house fires. Or, the damage to the Acropolis is coincidental, having occurred about the same time as an invasion where the city was burnt. After this, the city lay in ruins for some time, potentially hundreds of years. Do recognize that this doesn't mean it wasn't inhabited. Instead, it was nowhere near its former glory and economic state. All of this gleaned from the interpretation of erosion channels that cut through the debris. Based on the depth and spread of this erosion, the city is thought to have been abandoned for a period between 20 and 40 years. Then, it was rebuilt again, this time with apparent Egyptian influences. This was in the form of stone pillars shaped with the copper saws, along with other typically Egyptian building techniques. The wall was rebuilt as well, 
this time with two gates in a large open reservoir that effectively captured rainwater. Then, around 2550 BC, based on damage and rebuilding to the fortifications and major changes in the temple area, it appears there was a temporary disturbance at the site. Another 150 years later, around 2400 BC, complete destruction hit the city again. The theory, speculation really, is that a local Canaanite ruler may have been able to drive the Egyptians from the city, but this was only temporary, with the Egyptians destroying it in a counterattack. Remember, it's speculation. At this point, at least according to some researchers, Ettel was abandoned and lay in ruins for over a thousand years. The next settlement period did not begin until the early Iron Age, sometime around 1200 BC, when a wave of settlers came and seemingly peacefully rebuilt parts of the city. This new village does not appear to have had a wall and was much smaller than the previously thriving urban center. They cut rainwater-fed cisterns into the rock and used terrace farming on the slopes of the hill. Artifacts uncovered from nearly every home include farming tools and animal bones. This suggests the economy was agriculturally based, with both farming and animal husbandry. Then, about 150 years later, sometime around 1050 BC, the village was again abandoned, with nothing uncovered indicating that it was burned or otherwise destroyed. The Israelites arrived nearly 1,000 years later, and, like Jericho, there are researchers who think that this means the narrative found in Joshua was a creation of later writers attempting to show how the Israelites dominated the region, a nationalistic narrative. They posit that the writers, who created the stories around 700 BC, relied on ancient ruins to support their stories. Of course, if this is true, this would mean that the ruins in 700 BC were approaching 2,000 years old. I don't know if that's at all plausible. Stones cut, then piled into pyramids in a dry climate can last that long. But mud bricks? That's a bit of a stretch. Overall, these researchers have five potential hypotheses. The first is that the story was created later, and it was related to Joshua due to his historical reputation and fame. The second theory is that people from Bethel were living in Ai when the Israelites invaded. This one does have a potential of some biblical support. Bethel is only about a mile and a half, two kilometers from Ai. Jericho, the previous city defeated by the Israelites, is just under nine miles, 14 kilometers to the east. So, Bethel may have been between Ai and where the Israelites were encamped at Gilgal. There is no mention in the narrative about Bethel being captured, despite it being so close. A later passage in Judges 1 does mention its capture. According to the hypothesis, this may be a case of historical confusion. The fourth theory is that the city of Ai was destroyed earlier by the Egyptians, and the fifth is that Ai was at a different location. Take your pick. 
the city would be rebuilt on top of the ruins in the Middle Iron Age. At that time, it appears that an Acropolis accompanied the village. What happened between these periods could range from complete abandonment to a site that was completely destroyed and pillaged by an invading force to simply a city that slowly morphed into a later development. And of course, anything in between. There is another place proposed as the site of the biblical AE, and that's Kirabit el Magatir. This archaeological dig site is about 9 miles, 14 kilometers north of Jerusalem. While that doesn't sound far, it would place it in about the right area, and close enough to Bethel. Do note that this is a very, very new theory, with the earliest excavation date that I could find occurring in 1995. So far, a small fort has been uncovered, with walls 10 feet, 3 meters thick, and 13 feet, 4 meters tall. The fortress was destroyed by fire, as evidenced by the red and fragmented bedrock in the area around where the gate is thought to have been. This gate was on the north side of the fort, leading credence to it being A.E. Recall that in the text, all the fighting men who were with Joshua went up and drew near before the city, and camped on the north side of A.E., with a ravine between them and A.E. But this site, the one north of Jerusalem, is a small place, so small it would have been nearly impossible for 12,000 people to have lived there. Proponents of this location as the biblical A.E. explain this as interpreting the source Hebrew text, not as saying 12,000 dying, but instead a more ambiguous 12 units. I did go through several different Old Testament translations, in addition to the usual three, and could not find this interpretation in any of them. But there's something that leads me to give at least the unit's translation the benefit of the doubt. And that's that the text says 12,000. Exactly 12,000 died. That's unlikely. And given that other numbers in the same general vicinity of the text are more exact, 12 units is at least plausible. In wrapping up, Pottery uncovered at the site dates to the Late Bronze Age. Other uncovered pottery, including ones containing the bones of an infant, have been dated to around 1500 BC, which would be about the same time that the Israelites arrived. Just as interesting, a large stela was uncovered. Unfortunately, it was weathered too much to allow deciphering of the text. In addition, after the fortress was destroyed, it appears to have been permanently abandoned, just as A.E. was in the biblical text. And this provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the journey through Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. 
You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.